This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America. I'm Yehis Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... When we've displayed these objects, um, we have indicated that they were part of a, a, a group of bronzes that were looted during the 1897 punitive expedition by the British forces. That's Naire Blackenberg, the director of the Smithsonian Museum of African Art, about the return of historical artwork to Nigeria. Details coming up. Also, African nations face economic headwinds. Severe drought followed by flooding has left over two million people hungry in Chad. And Cameroon says a monkeypox outbreak has been confirmed. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. The IMF and World Bank are holding their annual meeting and the global projections for growth were expected but still painful, especially for Africa. VOA reporter Abi Sun has been attending the sessions and explains the reasons. Esther, today is the fourth day of the International Monetary Fund's annual meetings. As we mentioned earlier this week in the program, the MF released the World Economic Outlook this year on Tuesday. It predicts a global growth to slow down from 6% in 2021 to 3.2% uh, this year and 2.7% next year. This is largely due to three factors, um, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the cost of living crisis caused by the persistent and broadening inflation pressures, and the economic slowdown in China. Um, the MF uh, economists also highlighted, um, you know, developing countries, um, or we call it emerging markets, will be the ones being hit the most um, because of the low vac- vaccination rate and global supply chain disruption, putting more pressure on food supply. One of the sessions I attended um, on supply chain disruption on Sub-Saharan Africa, the analysts said um, global supply chain disruption is affecting our region much more than developed countries because consumers in Sub-Saharan Africa spend much higher percentage of their income on treatable goods um, and also food as in basic you know, life necessities. Um, whereas in developed countries, um, people spend more on services. As we mentioned on Tuesday, the other uh, focus, main focus of this year's meeting is on debt restructuring, debt relief. In one session, I attended um, debt restructuring. Um, whether it's too little or too late is a question people often ask. Um, the panelists say it's always too little too too little too late um, because from the creditors' perspective, they rather take a more conservative approach. So, and also that relief is not going to get rid of um, economic issue because it doesn't really generate resources. So, um, the the better approach is to combine the the means of that restructuring and try to figure out way to generate. Um, economic growth. Um, and it, it's really worth to mention that um, Zambia um, is one of the first countries um, made the debt restructuring arrangement with, uh, with AMAC in August. So it could be a template for more countries to go through the same process. AMAC also indicates they're trying to get it done by the end of this year, yet there's no clear sign where we are on the terms so this afternoon, I will try to, try to find out more. 
At the World Bank IMF meetings in Washington this week, one of the major concerns has been the outlook for global economic growth. Andrew Davalen, the World Bank's African region chief economist, tells VOA's Douglas Mpuga the economic activity in sub-Saharan Africa is slowing amid global headwinds, putting a halt to poverty reduction. Debt relief is a real, real issue, and it's a real uh, focus of the discussions. So in Africa, for example, right now, debt levels are very high, about 60% of the GDP uh, on average. Debt service ratios, debt service levels have also gone up um, from about 5% a decade ago, of 5% of revenues a decade ago to almost 16.5% now. And the recent uh, activities of the central banks are not going to make that easier because you know, they're raising interest rates, you know, their service costs are going to go up. So it's, it's, it's a real challenge. Now, earlier during the pandemic, the World Bank and the G20 in general have agreed to provide debt service suspension under a program called Debt Service Suspension Initiative. And that provided billions of dollars. But there were two issues. One is that the scale of the problem became much, much larger. And therefore, in the end, those billions were not enough to offset the, the needs. And two, that initiative has ended. Uh, it ended in December of 2021. So some of the discussion now, again, under the auspices of G20, is something we call a common framework for debt treatment. And under that treatment, the idea is to try and look for a long-term solution to a lot of countries that are right now in debt distress or in high risk of debt distress um, so that they can get either a restructuring of their debt, a reprofiling of their debt, or even reduction of their debt. So that's the conversation that is currently undergoing. It's a slow process because there are multiple actors implicated in this who have to come to the table. Some of them are private creditors. Some of them are bilateral. Some of them are, are multilateral banks. So as you can imagine, when there are so many such actors, uh, the process is not going to be smooth and it's taking a while, but that's the commitment. A handful of African countries are not doing as well, as badly as the rest of the sub-Saharan Africa. What are the few countries doing right that the others are not doing? So a lot of the countries that are doing well right now, um, you could say, have two things going for them. One is that they got lucky because they are basically exporters of oil. And oil prices are high because there's a, a very high demand for oil and gas if, if they're exporting gas as well. Some of them are also exporting minerals that may be in very high demand. But the other thing that they've been doing is leading up to this period, they have been doing a lot of uh, internal reform. So a lot of the um, natural resource-dependent economies, particularly in Central Africa, have been beneficiaries of, of the current run-up of uh, oil, oil prices. The other countries that are not natural resource dependent but have been doing better are countries that have focused more on fiscal discipline, managing that debt, and mostly focusing on debt that is actually uh, concessional, meaning that it is not commercial and high interest and short-term maturities, but you know, long-term, you know, long-term maturities, meaning 40, 50 years repayment period, uh, low interest rates, uh, mostly from uh, concessionary, uh, concessional um, for sources. So that, and then, of course, 
countries that have been have had diversified economies are also, you know, seeming to be resilient in that sense. Andrew Dabalen is the World Bank Africa Region Chief Economist. He spoke with Douglas Mpuga from Washington. This week in Washington, American museums returned 31 pieces of historical art to Nigeria. 29 artifacts known as Benin bronzes had been held in the Smithsonian Museum of African Art. One had been in the Smithsonian National Gallery of Art and one had been at the Rhode Island School of Design Museum in the northeastern state of Rhode Island. Earlier today, my colleague... Esther Gitwi Ewart interviewed Nere Blackenberg, the director of the Smithsonian Museum of African Art, about the return of the bronzes. Um, there's many different ways that we got a, our collection of 35 bronzes. Some were with another collection, someone with the bequest, some on loan, some we purchased. Um, we've um, got our collection over the last probably 20 years or so. So does the act of returning them amount to an admission of guilt uh, for displaying wasn't acquired legally? No, it was it was acquired completely legally. Um, I don't think there's any dispute as to whether we were in our legal right to have uh, these objects. The issue is really one more of ethics. Um, When we've displayed these objects, um, we have indicated that they were part of uh, a a group of bronzes that were looted during the 1897 punitive expedition by the British forces. Um, obviously, we are an American museum. <laughs> we were not part of that expedition in 1897. Um, but nevertheless, I think the ethical thing to do is to not just look at the conditions of how they got to us as a museum, but the conditions that they were removed in, um, in their countries of origin. And so that's the consideration that we're taking right now. You mentioned the British forces, but initially those artifacts were actually stolen over a century ago. Is this a residual of colonization with the repatriation of these artifacts? And how do the museums now move forward? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think the Benin Bronzes is a, a well-documented case of colonial forces taking um, works to assert their power over a particular kingdom or community of people. Um, we are trying to address that, of course, proactively right now as an African art museum. Um, most of the work in our collection of over 12,000 objects um, have are completely ethical, <laughs> but the ones that are not, we're definitely looking at and taking the steps to address those. So what mechanisms has the Smithsonian Museum put in place to ensure that artifacts of that kind of nature do not illegally end up at your museum? It's really important to stress that this is not a question of the law. This is a question of ethics. We know that the law changes over many, many centuries. The Smithsonian does not and has never broken the law um, in terms of any kind of acquisition processes. In addition, we have a very strict um, incoming or accessioning process in which we ensure um, we do not accept anything in our collection without knowing about its provenance right now. Um, we are very strict about what comes into the collection of our museum. That being said, the museums have been collecting institutions for hundreds of years. Um, And so what we are trying to do at the moment with the ethical returns um, policy that is Smithsonian wide is to go back through our collection and make sure that things that have already been in our collection and have been in our collection for some time 
um, have not been acquired through unethical means. You know, Naira, that's a, a step forward, and I like the fact that you're looking at it ethically. Uh, how was the ceremony uh, during the handover to the Nigerian government? It was great. It was wonderful. I mean, we were really, really honored to have our guests um, from the ministry, the prince from representing the Oba from the Kingdom of Benin, um, and many, many distinguished guests. Um, we're really proud of it, um, but it's the beginning of a new step for us, of a reset in our relationship with African artists, African creatives, African communities, and African institutions. Um, so for us, it's 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 the beginning, you know, it, it's and it's a relief, to be honest. We don't want to have objects um, that haven't, that shouldn't be there. We want people to feel comfortable coming into our museums, trusting 100% that everything that we are showing is being acquired in a way that is ethical and legal and right. That was Nere Blankenberg, the director of the Smithsonian Museum of African Art. She was speaking with Esther Gatwee-Award, the host of VOA's Africa 54 program. For more on the Benin Bronzes, check out voaafrica.com. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi released hundreds of political prisoners ahead of the COPE 27 climate conference that will draw world leaders to Sharm el-Sheikh next month. But the Committee to Protect Journalists has joined 46 human rights organizations and individuals in the global coalition of civil society organizations and individuals calling for Egyptian authorities to release Mohammed el-Bakar founder of the director of the Adal Center for Rights and Freedoms, and British-Egyptian writer and pro-democracy activist Ala Abdel Fattah, who was arrested three years ago. Sharif Mansour, Middle East Program Coordinator at CPJ, explained to VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed al-Shinawi the reasons behind jailing journalists in Egypt. The fact is uh, Ala Abdel Fattah and his lawyer Muhammad Baqir have been retaliated against because of their criticism to the government. Ala have been held the longest possibly of anyone we know as journalists in Egypt over the course of nine years or more. And even when he was released, he was put in this vicious police monitoring that kept him in custody every night. All was to pressure him not to speak up. But he did. In 2019, when the last nationwide large-scale anti-government protest happened in Egypt. And when he was arrested, that made Egypt continue to be one of the worst journalists in the world, according to our count. But as of today, he and at least 16 journalists that we know of are still behind bars. And we, as a coalition, we as an organization, demand that they are released, all 16 of them, including Ala Abdel Fattah, and also that the government tackle the systematic problem that put people like him in diplomatic cases that show retaliation in jail without trial, without right of defense. And what we're hoping that while the Egyptian government slows down its oppression, that they work on dismantling the oppression machine in Egypt. Global Coalition of Civil Society Organizations and Individuals stated that as Egypt gears up 
to host the UN Climate Change Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh this November, Egypt cannot purport to lead the international stage through fora like COP27 without also opening up the civic space, a demand that has been made by Egyptian civil society organizations and hundreds of allies around the world. What does that mean for the U.S. policy towards Egypt? It means that the U.S. government have to step up and go for what they have done so far. The administration is still doing the bare minimum to live up to their commitments about supporting democracy and human rights in Egypt. And Congress equally can do more in order to punish government for jailing journalists, for doing extraterritorial assaults against Egyptian-Americans and those who are speaking up here. And that means that they force the Egyptian government as they do receive officials from around the world, including U.S. officials, to meet with representatives of international, regional, and local press and human rights organizations in order to have a direct, honest dialogue about improving the dire situation of human rights in Egypt. That means meeting with them and also making sure no one from the local NGOs and local journalists who are going to cover the events of the COP27 are retaliated against during or after the event is ended and U.S. and other officials have left. That was Sharif Mansour, Middle East Program Coordinator at the Committee to Protect Journalists, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed Al-Shinawi. Health authorities in Cameroon say they have confirmed a monkeypox outbreak in the town of Mbonge on the western border with Nigeria. But they say armed separatists are stopping health workers from investigating hundreds of suspected cases of the virus, which can be fatal, especially in young children if left untreated. Moki Edwin Kindeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. Cameroon government officials say health workers have been deployed to the districts of Kumba and Bonge to communicate to civilians with suspected monkeypox infections to immediately isolate and avoid contact with other people and animals, including pets. Kumba and Bonge are districts located in Cameroon's English-speaking southwest region near the border with Nigeria. Emmanuel Lenya Nefenda is the highest-ranking Cameroon public health official in Kumba. He says they are educating civilians after a suspected monkeypox infection was confirmed in Kumba. He says the case of Kumba was reported after the confirmation by Cameroon public health officials of a monkeypox outbreak in Bole Bakundu, a village in Bonge. Nefenda says everyone should protect themselves from monkeypox, which is highly contagious. 
people should avoid eating wild animals they should avoid being beaten by wild animals of course they should avoid contact with wild animals apart from that they should keep the environment clean clean by wearing clothes that are properly clean not the ones that are let me say bush clothes where rats and other animals have defecated or they have had contact with for which case the contraction and the transmission can be affected Nefenda spoke via the messaging app WhatsApp from Kumba. The government says one case of monkeypox was confirmed positive and is receiving treatment in an isolation ward in the Kumba hospital. Several dozen specimens have been collected from suspected patients and sent to specialized laboratories in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, for laboratory examinations, the government says. Health officials are warning civilians to take suspected patients to hospital and not to herbalists or African traditional healers in villages. But villagers say ongoing battles between separatists and government troops make it impossible for suspected patients to be transported to hospitals which are far away in towns. Separatists on social media platforms, including Facebook and WhatsApp, say any health worker sent by Cameroon's central government in Yaoundé should obtain an authorization from fighters. But the government says only Cameroon state officials can assure the safety of health workers assisting people suspected of monkeypox infections. Echo Echo Philbert is the highest government official in charge of public health in Cameroon's English-speaking southwest region where Kumba and Bonge are located. He says armed groups should allow medical staff members to render humanitarian services. They should collaborate with the team that is in the field. Because we need the contacts of these people to reduce monkeypox spread. Yes, it is scary pathology if you look at the image but uh, it is something that is contained so it's not a problem that should call for panic measures have been taken at all the different levels to reduce its spread echo says no health official deployed to assist civilians suspected of monkeypox infection has been attacked but that frightened health workers are scared of going out to search for patients and suspected patients the government says it will protect both its citizens and health workers. The UN says Cameroon is a monkeypox endemic country, but displacement away from established surveillance systems due to armed conflicts increased the risk of undetected transmission. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization said 21 countries in the past week reported an increase in monkeypox cases mostly in the Americas, which accounted for almost 90% of all cases reported last week. The WHO says cases in the global monkeypox outbreak have topped 70,000 and warned that a decline in new cases did not mean people should drop their guard as the slowdown in new cases worldwide could be the most dangerous time in the outbreak. The UN says the disease causes fever, muscular aches, and large boil-like skin lesions. Moki, Edwin Kinzaka, for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon.
You're listening to Africa News Tonight. Find us on voaafrica.com. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Next, a conversation with Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who specializes in authoritarian movements around the world. Ben-Ghiat will discuss the significance of the recent elections in Italy, which brought to power a political party with roots in fascism and Mussolini. She will also discuss threats posed by gains in far-right parties in Sweden and Hungary, as well as the erosion of democracy in the United States and Brazil. Next on Press Conference USA, on The Voice of America. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyus Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Des McConan, and our engineer, Cornelius Tanner, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.